Hello, this is Professor Hayat Alvi, U.S. Naval War College. Everything I say represents my own personal views. Today is Wednesday, August 4th, 2021. Today's topic for my podcast has to do with two Nobel Peace Prize winners who recently have directly and indirectly supported atrocities and genocide in their respective countries. I am talking about Ethiopia's Abiy Ahmed and Burma's or Myanmar's Aung San Suu Kyi. Let me begin by talking about Abiy Ahmed of Ethiopia. I'm reading from BBC News and it is published or posted on June 14th of this year. And the topic, um, the title is Ethiopia's Abiy Ahmed, the Nobel Prize winner who went to war. I'm reading it now. Ethiopia's Prime Minister, Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed was once widely praised outside the country for reforming his reforming zeal, but that image was shattered in the months leading up to his first electoral test. His journey from darling of the international community to condem condemnation has been swift. Bagging the Nobel Peace Prize in October 2019, for finally bringing an end to the 20-year stalemate with Eritrea, cemented his international status. But, but the war in Ethiopia's northern Tigray region has meant a rapid re reversal. He became prime minister in 2018 at the age of 41, taking on the job against the backdrop of anti-government protests. His useful, youthful energy and beaming smile offered hope. Mr. Abiy's Governing Ethiopian People's Revolutionary Democratic Front, EPRDF, coalition was deep into its third decade in power and had been dogged by accusations of repression and human rights abuses. This included the locking up of opponents and silencing of journalists. The EPRDF had overseen speedy economic growth, but many felt excluded from its benefits. This feeling of marginalization, particularly among the country's largest ethnic group, the Oromo, fueled a wave of demonstrations. Mr. Abi and Oromo himself was promoted to the top job and immediately set about addressing concerns in a dizzying period of reforms. He released thousands of political prisoners, lifted restrictions on independent media, and invited the country's once-banned opposition groups back into the country from ex exile. He backed a woman to become president created gender parity in the cabinet, and established a ministry of peace. The crowning achievement for, for, this, for this prime minister was the peace deal with Eritrea and the reopening of the common border. Mr. Abi toured the country and spoke about bringing the multi-ethnic country together. 
he devised a new philosophy, a, a new political philosophy, Medimer, aimed at fostering a sense of national unity in the face of ethnic divisions. He also wanted to celebrate that diversity. He enjoyed the widespread popularity, partly as a result of the dramatic changes in the country, but part of his appeal was also his personal story. I'm going to skip down to a few sections uh, where it says, musician murdered. The army's chief of staff and the leader of the country's second largest region were killed in a single night, hundreds of miles apart. Many other low and mid-level officials met similar fates. And to quell growing violence, Mr. Abi returned to the tactics of previous governments. Internet and phone lines were shut down multiple times. Suspects were arrested en masse. Some were later released, having spent weeks or months behind bars without a trial. The murder a year ago of popular Oromo musician Hashalu Hundesa in the capital Addis Ababa further heightened ethnic tensions and led to increased security measures. The violence that followed his killing in Oromia, uh, the country's largest region, and Addis Ababa claimed more than 200 civilian lives. Prominent opposition figures were arrested on suspicion of inciting or escalating the violence. That prompted accusations against the prime minister by many Oromo activists that he was attempting to wipe out meaningful opposition in Oromia. But it was relations with another of the country's ethnically-based states that has damned his reputation. I'm skipping down to talk about the crisis in Tigray. Mr. Abi's move in November 2019 to disband the EPRDF and form a new unified political organization, the Prosperity Party, intensified his struggle with the Tigray People's Liberation Front, TPLF. The TPLF was the ruling party in Tigray and had been the dominant force within the EPRDF government. Sensing a reduction in its power, the TPLF refused to join Mr. Abi's new organization. It essentially withdrew back to its heartland and tensions finally broke out into conflict between the federal government and the TPLF. The war, which is now in its eighth month, was described by Mr. Abi as, quote, a law enforcement operation, unquote. But as it has dragged on, there are uh, there are more growing accusations of human rights abuses, mass rape, extrajudicial killing, and the use of starvation as a tactic. The tone of the international expressions of concern has become increasingly harsh. Last month, the United States, once a stalwart ally in the fight against terror, announced visa restrictions on people found quote responsible for or complicit in undermining resolution of the crisis in Tigray, unquote. 
The U.S. also imposed restrictions on economic and security assistance. This is a remarkable turnaround to how Mr. Abe and his government were viewed three years ago. But when it comes to the election, it is his reputation at home that matters most, and that has also been damaged. Uh, just jumping down to the conclusion here. While Mr. Abe inter, uh, shuns interviews with reporters, he nonetheless enjoys the spotlight. A common theme in his numerous speeches and social media posts is how Ethiopia will prevail despite significant challenges. It appears that he, he sees criticism of his government as an inevitable byproduct of attempting to bring change. And that concludes the BBC article on Abiy Ahmed of Ethiopia. I'm going to quickly uh, summarize Aung San Suu Kyi, um, her profile in a, a BBC article of March 5, 2021. And it's called Aung San Suu Kyi, Myanmar Democracy Icon Who Fell from Grace. So starting to read that, she was once seen as a beacon for human rights, a principled activist who gave up her freedom to challenge the ruthless army generals who ruled Myanmar for decades. In 1991, Aung San Suu Kyi was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize while still under house arrest and hailed as, quote, an outstanding example of the power of the powerless, unquote. In 2015, she led the, uh, the National League for Democracy, NLD, to victory in Myanmar's first openly contested election in 25 years. But she was deposed by a coup in 2021 when the military took control and arrested her and the political leadership around her. While her image had suffered internationally due to her response to the crisis that befell Myanmar's mostly Muslim Rohingya minority, she remains hugely popular with the country's Buddhist majority. Uh, it describes a bit her background and her path to power and her political pedigree as being the daughter of Burma's independence hero, General An Song. Um, and he was assassinated when she was two years old, and that was just before uh, Myanmar or Burma gained independence from the British uh, in 1948. So I'm skipping a lot of those details. And then, of course, once she was um, uh, became a campaigner of democracy and civil rights in, in Burma, she remained under house arrest for decades. And so the article talks a bit about that. And then there's a section that talks about re-entering politics. So I'll start again from there. Aung San Suu Kyi was sidelined from Myanmar's first elections in two decades on 7 November 2010, but released from house arrest six days later. Her son Kim was allowed to visit her for the first time in a decade. As the new government embarked on a process of reform, Ms. Suu Kyi and her, party, and her party rejoined the political process. They won 43 of the 45 seats contested in April 2012 by, by elections in an emphatic statement of support. 
Miss Suu Kyi was sworn in as an MP and leader of the opposition. The following May, she left Burma or Myanmar for the first time in 24 years in a sign of apparent confidence that its new leaders would allow her to return. Now, the Rohingya crisis. Reading it uh, further, since becoming Myanmar state councilor, her leadership has been partly defined by the treatment of the country's mostly Muslim Rohingya minority. In 2017, hundreds of thousands Rohingya of Rohingya fled to neighboring Bangladesh due to an army crackdown sparked by deadly uh, attacks on police stations in Rakhine State. Myanmar now faces a lawsuit accusing it of genocide at the International Court of Justice, the ICJ, while the International Criminal Court, the ICC, is investigating the country for crimes against humanity. Ms. Suu Kyi's former international supporters accused her of doing nothing to stop rape, murder, and possible genocide by refusing to condemn the still powerful military or even acknowledging accounts of atrocities. A few initially argued that she was a pragmatic politician trying to govern a multi-ethnic country with a complex history. But her personal defense of the army's actions at the ICJ hearing in The Hague was seen as a new turning point for her international reputation. At home, however, the quote unquote, the lady, as Miss Suu Kyi is known, remains wildly popular among the Buddhist majority who hold little sympathy for the Rohingya. I'm stopping here for a moment to, to note that um, there is in particular a Buddhist extremist organization in Burma or Myanmar that has been behind most of the violence uh, uh, and uh, targeted um, atrocities against the Rohingya uh, Muslim minority in Burma. Now, I like to call it Burma kind of out of protest because it's the military, the, the despotic military junta uh, who for dec decades ruled uh, uh, Burma and changed the name to Myanmar. So I often refer to it as Burma um, in my own personal protests. Now, the point of talking about these two Nobel Peace Prize recipients is to highlight a few things. One, that the international community, community can go overboard in its um, obsession sometimes or obsessive uh, adorning or adoration of individual leaders or political leaders or activists um, who may be seen as um, ideal, uh, peace-loving uh, activists or political leaders. And then their true colors come out later when they're in positions of power. So I think we also learn a lot from uh, getting overconfident about some of the despotic autocratic leaders, uh, mainly their sons in the Middle East who have studied in the West and often have even studied democracy and human rights 
I'll give examples like uh, Gaddafi's son, who um, studied in in England, and several other uh, dictators and despots whose sons, it's been mainly sons, but in some cases, other children as well, females as well, who have studied in the West, in Western higher education. And it gave a lot of overconfidence and feelings of joy on the part of Western powers and intellectuals, thinking that once these individuals return to their home country and uh, inherit their seat of power from their uh, mainly their fathers. And a, and a good example of this is Bashar al-Assad, who was uh, an eye doctor in England before he became the, succeeder, uh, the successor to uh, his father, Hafez al-Assad, in Syria. We have to temper our enthusiasm in the West, thinking that they, these guys um, studying and writing theses on uh, democracy and uh, liberalism and freedoms and rights is automatically going to convert them somehow into pro-democracy uh, leaders uh, succeeding their their previous um, uh, leaders, mainly their in, uh, inherited positions of power, usually, especially that's the case in the Middle East. So again, that's another point I want to highlight, which is we have to be very pragmatic and temper our our enthusiasm when we see um, people coming out of very harsh regimes um, and studying in the Western higher educational institutions, uh, but not not taking it as a given that they're going to be by nature of that higher education um, going to convert into pro-democracy political leaders in the future. The third thing I want to point out is that there has to be accountability, whether one receives the Nobel Peace Prize or not, regardless of who the political leadership is, whether they're in the West or non-West, whether they're in the North or in the South, Global North or the Global South, it doesn't matter. Accountability and rule of law are extremely detrimental uh, if they're not up upheld by the global community. Because that if they're not upheld, then that gives license to the likes of, uh, in this case, uh, Abi Ahmed, Aung San Suu Kyi, and the likes of uh, the Assad regime, and many, many others, uh, to go on and commit atrocities with, with impunity. So rule of law and accountability at, a, at the international stage must be embraced and must be followed through uh, if we are to um, promote and sustain rule of law at the regional and global levels. So thank you for listening and I hope you take to heart these points and messages about uh, making sure we temper our enthusiasm until we see the true colors of individual political leaders um, uh, and, and then 
judge them accordingly. Thank you.